Welcome to members of our board, the Wilson Center board, supporters of the Wilson Center joining from the United States and around the world to the 12th installment of our virtual Wilson policy briefs. On this call uh, are at least the following. Four members of our Global Advisory Council, including co-chairs Dave Petraeus and John Scarlett, members Idan Affair and uh, Dinesh Paliwal, uh, are uh, the international and the domestic co-chair of our cabinet, Ken Slater, and I got that backwards, Don McClellan and Ken Slater. Uh, our council chair, Diana Negroponte, and members uh, Michael Waller and Ellen Windsor, and uh, uh, our dear friend Kathy uh, Gildenhorn, among others. Um, today we're visiting Russia to examine how it has responded to the pandemic and what the crisis means for President Vladimir Putin. These days, the country's caseload is increasing by about 9,000 cases every day. Over 424,000 have been infected and over 5,000 have died, though the official statistics are disputed. Things don't, didn't always look this dire for Russia. It shut down the border with China in January, and at first, the spread of the disease was remarkably slow. But early last month, uh, Moscow's mayor, Sergei uh, Sobyanin, um, announced that the real number of cases in the capital were likely three times higher than the official reports. Ooh, fake news, fake news, three times higher. Every country's statistics are bound to be somewhat inaccurate because of the differences in testing and reporting procedures, but in Russia, the huge discrepancy, the mayor claimed the city had 300,000 cases, not 92,000, could be explained by uh, local authorities who have long been accustomed to telling higher-ups what they want to hear. The country now has, assuming these statistics are accurate, the third most cases in the world behind the U.S. and Brazil. Putin has assured citizens the situation is under full control, but has largely allowed regional authorities to claim the spotlight. In the meantime, his approval ratings fell to an historic low of 59%. Wouldn't our president love that? Uh, in April, and he was forced to postpone until July 1 a referendum on constitutional amendments allowing him to stay in power until 2036. There's a lot to discuss, uh, along with the recent oil price shock uh, and how Russia sees the escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. Let me also suggest that uh, this is a very sobering moment in the United States, and the protests in all of our cities are having a uh, huge effect on how Russia and Russians view us. And so I certainly hope that will be added to the discussion. And let me just add there that uh, at the Wilson Center, uh, we are paying close attention to what's going on. Many of us uh, live and work in Washington, D.C. That's where I am now, although I'm a resident of, of Los Angeles. And uh, we were dismayed, uh, especially two nights ago, uh, by what happened uh, in uh, uh, right across the street from the White House. And so we are uh, looking inward uh, in our Wilson family, and we are looking outward uh, at what we say to the world, and what additional programming we do. So I do think uh, both Matt and Jill, whom I'm going to introduce in two seconds, uh, if you could address this topic, I think it would be very helpful uh, for those listening in. So I've already, uh, spoiler alert, I've already told you that uh, sharing their expertise with us today are Matt Rajansky, the vaunted director of our Kennan Institute, and 
uh, a seasoned journalist and lovely friend, Jill Doherty, who is a global fellow at the center and was former CNN foreign or maybe she's current CNN foreign affairs correspondent and a host of uh, and the host of the institute's X podcast. Uh, I look forward to hearing their assessment of all these topics: medical, political, economic challenges, plus uh, how these protests are are, are uh, uh, being uh, uh, analyzed in in Russia. And please note that the first portion of this conversation will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. If you have a question, you can email it to nora.bodner, most of you know this, at wilsoncenter.org. Please join me in welcoming Matt and Jill. Over to you. Okay, thank you very much, Jane. And you know, and you really queued it up so well, teed it up very well, because you got into a lot of these different aspects that are happening at the same time. It's really <laughs> mind-boggling, um, all of these things happening at the same time. And I was just watching Russian TV, which I try to do regularly. Uh, I've been talking with some friends and seeing some podcasts and other webinars coming out of Moscow. And just before we began this, when I was watching Russian TV, I was watching a report on a beauty salon opening. And it was kind of like um, what you would see in the United States. They're sanitizing all the stations. Everyone's wearing masks. They're doing social distancing. And then the next story uh, deals with the protests in the United States. So that is what Russians are seeing right now. Um, and we can definitely get into both of those. But there is, I'd have to say, and, and I would be really interested in how Matt sees this, Matt, who's a, a great colleague and I think has one of the really most balanced and sophisticated approaches to Russia among my other colleagues and people that I know. So I, I really want to hear how he he understands what's going on. but. I would note this kind of strange symmetry with the United States because both leaders, President Putin and President Trump, initially kind of, you know, downplayed it to a certain extent. President Putin, as James said, saying everything's under control and and pretty much President Trump saying it's under control. Then there was this interesting shifting responsibility to the governors and to the mayor of Moscow, who's almost like a governor. And then um, this move to open up, everything's okay, we can open the country, let's get back to work. But for Russia, it really is a triple threat, at least it could be a quadruple, but let's say triple, confluence of three challenges, the health challenge itself, the economic situation, uh, and this political threat, President Putin as Jane mentioned, having to postpone the vote on constitutional changes that would allow him to stay in power until 2036. He'd been in his 80s by the time he'd be out of office. So all three of those things I want to get into, but Matt, maybe if you think this is a good way to begin, let's begin with kind of the nitty-gritty, how Russia is coping, the number of cases, and actually uh, let's say the health situation. I know that just a few minutes ago I saw the World Health Organization said that the number of coronaviruses in Russia is slowly declining. So I've got two questions then. How is Russia coping and how big a threat is this health issue 
to Vladimir Putin's rule. Well, uh, thanks very much, Jill, and thank you, Jane. I will try to live up to those introductions. Uh, I doubt very much that I can. Um, my sense is that um, the infection is, is nowhere near declining right now in Russia in, in two respects. Um, one is that when you have nearly 10,000 new cases a day, and Russia's been pretty stable at that level now for about a month, um, you know, you have half a million total cases, and let's just say for the sake of argument that the, the deaths are clearly north of the 5,000 number that's been uh, published. Um, if they were proportional to the number of reported cases and uh, deaths uh, in the United States, it would be approximately four times that number, so it would be closer to 20,000. Uh, you know, we here in the United States with 2 million reported cases have had 100,000 deaths, right? So it's some simple math. Um, I have no reason, there's no really good reason to think uh, that Russia would have a lower death rate. There are some strange conspiracy theory ideas. There are some not totally crazy demographic theories like uh, life expectancy is relatively low in Russia, so they have a lower acutely vulnerable population in the over 65 category. Um, I don't find that super compelling, though, because it's compensated for by the fact that you have relatively poor quality medical care, um, certainly without ICU intervention capability, um, you know, in something like 80 percent of the territory of the Russian Federation, so essentially outside of major cities. Um, all of that is, is made even more problematic by the second big factor, which is that this is a disease um, you won't be surprised to hear that began to spread principally in Moscow and to a very limited extent in regions that bordered on China as early as December and January but principally through Moscow, which is the country's main port of entry, so to speak. Uh, Russians returning from vacations uh, in France actually were, were traced to have been the main vector uh, and then spread quite rapidly throughout Moscow. But what has changed in the last week is that the spread is now considerably faster outside of Moscow than in Moscow. And, and the challenge there, on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's positive uh, if you can – uh, absorb across the entire country the same relative number of cases. Uh, again, I'm not sure that it's true that it's that it's uh, 9,000 and, and heading south. Um, it may actually be growing, and we just may not be getting the right information from uh, the Russian provinces, and we can talk about the reasons why that might be the case. Uh, but uh, the, the bad news really is Moscow is the place where all of the high-quality medical intervention capacity is. You just don't find it um, in the Russian regions except for a few major cities. So, yeah, it's a very big crisis. Um, the impact on the Russian state are significant in a whole host of respects. Uh, several uh, mentions have already been made of Putin's plan to amend the Constitution to approve it by an extra constitutional uh, plebiscite, essentially. This is not the correct uh, method under the terms of the Constitution itself to approve a constitutional amendment. In other words, it, it would be very similar to if in the United States uh, an American president wanted to add an amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, but forwent the two required methods for doing so under the U.S. Constitution, which would, of course, be a constitutional uh, convention, uh, you know, a, a majority of state legislatures uh, or, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's the case that, that uh, no, I think that's, that's the only way we can do it through the Congress, perhaps. Sorry, sorry to wander in my 
uh, very stale American constitutional law knowledge. But in, in Russia, uh, I know with certainty uh, that there are only two methods um, and that he has not done either. He is instead uh, calling for this extra constitutional um, uh, process, which is essentially a kind of PR. It's a way because, you know, a vote being taken across the 11 time zones, uh, you know, and 150 million people, the Russian Federation, without meaningful international observation, they can basically declare whatever result they want. Um, and, and so this is a way of decorating what has essentially been a unilateral decision uh, to resolve the uncertainty about where is Vladimir Putin going. He's not going anywhere. He is going to stay at least through 2036. That is another 12 years beyond 2024. So if you put in the context of uh, this, you know, enormous, um, you know, almost generational in the sense that there will be, there will be you know, middle-aged people with families who have never known any other ruler than Vladimir Putin uh, by the third decade or the fourth decade of this century, put that in the context of a country that's reeling from a public health crisis uh, and that has a fair amount of capital uh, stored up in the National Wealth Fund, but that can barely keep up with the economic impacts of the crisis, and we, can get, we should get more into that. Um, yeah, this is an enormous challenge for the regime. I, I don't put a huge amount of stock in the, in the statistics on Putin's popularity, 59%, 79%. You know, it, it's high, okay? He's, he is a, an authoritarian who has a high degree of uh, consent or at least uh, toleration uh, from the public, but the wheels can come off a system like that relatively quickly, and I think there are uh, some very significant uh, dangers and risks that he faces. Yeah. You know, Matt, um, I think you're right that we can't really get into the weeds too much because the weeds change a lot. Uh, but I, I've noted that, you know, generally there has been not really any rally around the flag uh, for Putin. In fact, I do believe that his ratings have been going down and it predated actually COVID. But um, no defections from the people who are in power, the people who are around Putin. Um, but, the, but what intrigues me very much, and I was just um, listening to a podcast in which this was pointed out, the polls are showing that people tend to support their governors, the local officials, but if there's blame in this, it's going toward the central government. And then you have this anomaly of President Putin, who always has been the power vertical, bring all of this power under his hands, suddenly, and to me, unexpectedly, farming it out to the governors, farming it out to the mayor of Moscow, and strangely passive until probably the last couple of weeks. So how do you explain this? What was he trying to do there? Yeah, so, so the basic dynamic is that um, Putin will make big declarations like, hey, we've got this, you know, coronavirus thing in hand. Uh, we got it covered. Nobody has to worry. Everyone's going to be fine. And then he'll say, and now it's a Moscow mayor, Sergei Sobyanin. He's in charge. Uh, and then basically from that point forward, it's Sobyanin running the show. He's the one that Russian citizens look to, his announcements, whether they're in his legal capacity, which is that he is the chief executive of Moscow. So he, he, he does get to set the terms for the city of Moscow, like mayors and governors do in the United States, or in this very strange, ambiguous uh, way in which he is kind of carrying the imprimatur of the chief executive of the Federation. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, he's not, he's sort of first among equals 
with other governors and mayors across the country, but um, he does run into a fair amount of trouble, like, you know, trying to tell the dictator of Chechnya, the Chechen Republic, sort of nominally um, autonomous, uh, ruled by Ramzan Kadyrov, this uh, young kind of quasi-Islamist thug who uh, has his own army of some 35,000, uh, you know, very heavily armed uh, police, uh, militarized police forces. You know, the mayor of Moscow uh, telling this guy, how, you know, what he's supposed to do, when he's supposed to open, when he's supposed to close the borders of his region, what should be the stay-at-home regime, especially when you have the Muslim holiday of Ramadan and uh, Eid at the end of it. You know, like, people shouldn't go to mosques. I mean, th- this was a very delicate and sensitive thing. And so it's, it's not just that that's hard in a big and diverse country like Russia. Yes, it's hard. That's very hard when the Tsar says, hey, make it work, and then kind of goes off to his dacha uh, into splendid isolation, which, which Putin has been doing. There's all kinds of speculation about why he's doing this. Uh, I don't read Putin's mind and make that uh, general rule. I don't know why he's doing this. Um, what I suspect more than anything uh, is that this is a long game uh, on the part of the Kremlin, so Putin and, and the entire Russian leadership. Um, they are... Uh, subject to lots of risk in their day-to-day lives, yes, and I've, I've noted a few possible areas of that we can talk about more, uh, but they're subject to far less of what you might call the short-term political pressure uh, than is, for example, our leadership in Washington. Our leadership in Washington is answerable on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis for outcomes uh, and for the perception of outcomes. And I think that the Russian leadership has the advantage, and one could argue this is an authoritarian advantage, but doesn't work for all authoritarians, um, that sitting on a considerable amount of money, a a reasonably uh, high or at least sustainable kind of popularity rating with the people, insofar as there are no other alternatives that come close, let me put it that way, there's no opposition waiting in the wings, Um, they can calculate accurately that they're going to still need to be able to fight the COVID-19 epidemic and whatever else happens in the world economy, uh, in the global security situation, um, possibly this time next year, but certainly through the end of this year. And so I think one thing that Putin may be doing uh, is signaling to the entire country and the entire elite, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We are not going to blow through hundreds of billions of dollars that we don't have right now We're going to hold those reserves, and that's exactly what they've done. We're going to make promises, but then we're going to throw it to the regional governments, which have no capacity to implement those promises, and then we'll swoop into the rescue later on, precisely because of the goal of kind of shifting this response over time uh, such that they don't look good initially and then run out of steam, which we have observed has been the case with a whole lot of governments around the world. You know, that's really interesting, Matt. And I was just noting this morning that, um, let's see, the uh, Russian government's plan, kind of like ours, trillions, uh, theirs is going to be 5 trillion rubles, which is 72, roughly 72 and a half billion, according to the prime minister. So as I'm looking at the clock here, boy, um, let's, if you could briefly just kind of talk about their survivability economically, and then I want to turn to China. So a uh, lot to talk about, but economic. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. So uh, the big storyline on Russia's economy has been 
um, the unintended benefit to Russia of having been subject to American-led international financial sanctions since 2014 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What do I mean by that? Um, because Russia uh, faced a stark choice, uh, reverse its policies in Ukraine, or be essentially cut out of the ability to borrow on uh, Western financial markets and the ability to trade in the most lucrative areas uh, with the Western-led international trading system, uh, basically, uh, the Russians were not going to reverse their policies in Ukraine, and that was clear to many of us. I've said it many times on the record. And so they took the other course available to them, uh, which was to pursue as much as possible what they call localization, um, so beginning to uh, revive dormant capabilities or import uh, from other sources like China uh, or the Gulf, um, the capital uh, and the know-how needed uh, to create capabilities to produce much of what they needed at home. And while that applies to the critical area of uh, medical PPE, for example, um, they are to a large degree uh, becoming self-sufficient, though they have the same issues of dependency on China initially that we did. Um, the areas where they had previously been dependent on the West, uh, they are not anymore um, because they were forced to adapt over five or six years. And the initial blow was felt five or six years ago, so it's already been absorbed by the economy. That's the argument. The argument is that Russia comes out of this with relatively less harm and relatively faster because of that localization. I'm not sure that's true. What the numbers tell us is that uh, unemployment in Russia uh, is at about 5.5%. That's very, very high for Russia because typically, uh, rather than letting people go, uh, what Russian employers do is they cut their wages and they give them the sort of devil's choice of you want to keep your job, well, we're going to pay you half as much. Um, and, you know, people may be working just as much or they may be in this regime of self-isolation or they may be growing food at home at their dachas and things. So, Basically, Russians have a way of kind of muddling through and getting by that isn't reflected fully in the statistics. Um, I think uh, the, the best estimates are anywhere between 7 and 15 percent uh, GDP contraction for this year, which would be enormous, obviously, especially following years of, of zero growth and actually negative uh, growth in real wages for ordinary people. So that's going to be a, a big blow uh, to uh the people uh, on whom the regime depends for their survival. It's sort of the Putin electorate. Um, and the big promises that the government has made uh, in terms of social payments, that they're going to raise at least nominal uh, pensions, uh, disability payments, and also death benefits. They have, they have promised death benefits for anyone who, who dies as a result of COVID. And one of the, the dirty little stories there is, um, you want to know why the reported number of deaths is so low. Well, there are a lot of reasons for it, but one of them might be if you have to pay for every death uh, and you'd rather not pay, then uh, if you control the statistics, just, you know, change them from column A to column B. Mm, wow. Uh, very typically Russian. <laughs> um, you, the word uh, China has come from your lips several times. So, up until now, I, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of this. Up until now, you had this strategic partnership with China, and now COVID is really turning it into kind of this U.S.-China rivalry, which is getting even worse. So Russia is sitting there in the middle, you could say. What is the role of Russia vis-a-vis -vis China and also in the middle of this fight between the United States and China? 
So this is a case, you know, I often caution against um, kind of the, the, the classic phenomenon of observer bias that sort of you, you make the whole world about your current experience and what matters to you. Um, but this is actually a case where Americans would not be wrong to do that. The whole Russia-China story is, is so much about the United States. What brings Russia and China together more than anything uh, is a kind of uh, moral narrative that the United States has run roughshod over both of their interests and prerogatives, that the United States is out of control and needs to be checked, uh, and that the two of them uh, together will be, will be more effective in doing so. That is more than anything what brings these two actors together. Um, and as long as the United States persists um, more or less with a message that says, you know, our national security is about great power competition with two principal bad guys, Beijing and Moscow, uh, it, it is going to be very unlikely that whatever other problems they may have between them, Beijing and Moscow will break ranks. Um, that said, it doesn't necessarily follow. The other side of the coin, so to speak, is not necessarily that the United States can choose at any moment to split Russia and China, right, to do another Nixon goes to China uh, and, and try to be closer to both Russia and China than, than the two of them are to each other. That was the Kissingerian maxim. Um, in order to do that, we would really have to be able to walk and chew gum uh, in our domestic and our foreign policy much more than we've proven capable of doing over the last 20 years. Um, because the issues that play into our disputes, our very zero-sum confrontations uh, with both Russia and China today are multifaceted and have both domestic political um, dimensions uh, and kind of pure foreign policy dimensions. And we have been very bad at balancing those things. I wouldn't argue that others are necessarily better, but only that um, it's not a matter of flipping a switch and having the insight, oh, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could split Russia and China? I hear that all the time from the U.S. government. Well, that has huge policy implications and political implications that we've been utterly incapable of grappling with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, let's see. We've got about five more minutes, and this is really the thing I, I think that we have to talk about, and Jane, Jane mentioned it. Um, in this great power competition world, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we have not only COVID, but we have these protests going on in the United States. As I said, I was watching TV, you know, an hour ago, and uh, I am seeing video on Russian TV of protests, uh, seeing reports on tasks about, they say, you know, 11 people die, hundreds injured, media uh, uh, 9,000 arrests, and China is taking advantage of this, too, I think kind of in a different way, uh, saying it's basically American hypocrisy about democracy, that it really isn't democracy, obviously. But it is a, it is a real challenge to see all of this, which horrifies Americans, being broadcast and put on the Internet by Russia and China. And so I think it, it does raise this issue of the significance for great power competition. Is, is it actually correct to say that this is now great power competition if the United States already has pulled out of a lot of uh, international issues and regions, and now we have this terrible example 
on the streets of where dem- American democracy stands. You know, I'm, I'm glad you raised it, Jill. We, we can't meet and, and talk in this moment, um, or really perhaps ever going forward, without grappling with uh, a very dark uh, situation that's, that's happening in front of us. Um, and I think very close to home for, for many of us. Um, the, the issue here is not one of perception. It's not one of communication that, you know, oh, it will make our great power competition harder if our dirty laundry is being aired by our adversaries. That's not the issue. I don't care uh, when, when truth is being reported, even if truth is being manipulated. I'm not terribly concerned about that. Um, I know that that's a controversial proposition. I have never been one who worries overly much. Oh, God, the Russians are spreading lies on social media. Guess what? Everyone's spreading lies on social media (laughs) all the time. Uh, What I worry about is uh, George F. Kennan's uh, timeless insight, uh, which you can read, and I commend you to do so, in the 1946 Long Telegram, which basically laid out the ethos of containment, which was the strategy that ultimately prevailed uh, against the Bolshevik Soviet Union in the Cold War. And that strategy essentially said you have to do three things. Um, Thing one is you have to know who you are and how you solve problems. You have to have what Kennan was willing to call, to use a turn of phrase that we might kind of balk at today, spiritual vitality as a nation. And I think in the spiritual vitality category, our cup runneth empty right now. Uh, That is a very hard one for us. And we have very little attractive power as a result. Second thing you have to do is to have capacity. You have to actually be able to meet the adversary when it makes your when it makes sense for you to do so. That's the, the classic idea of containment. You know, they uh, crop up over here in the third world. We have to be there too. Um, you know, our capacity is limited, but it's still far far greater uh, than Russia's, and, and even I think greater than China's. Um, though the trajectories of those are are, are clearly different. Um, and then the third thing you have to do is you have to actually know what you're doing, and that's what I meant before about. Uh, sort of walking and chewing gum at the same time. I mean, Kennan advocated over and over and over for Americans with government support, and I'm a beneficiary of of the wisdom of these policies uh, and the investments that were made during the Cold War and the early post-Cold War, um, to be trained in understanding what was happening in the Soviet Union and in Russia, um, and we've more or less thrown up our hands on that other than, you know, a precious few people, and you and I, Jill, are really privileged to, to work with a bunch of them, um, you know, most Americans, including decision makers, just simply haven't got a clue uh, how Russia and China, uh, not to mention others, see the world and why and what makes them tick and what are their ideologies and what do they want? Um, because if they did, I, I, have, I have sort of proof of this in the almost uh, tautological proposition. If they understood that, they wouldn't advocate for, by definition, ineffective policies you know, like sanctions that won't change Russia's behavior, but that will gradually erode America's dominant position in the global financial and trading system, which is exactly what's happening uh, five years down the road from sanctions. And yet it seems to be the only idea uh, that the American leadership can come up with over and over and over again. Um, And so I think Kennan's sort of three maxims are being broken at each point. And what's happening around us now is underscoring that our ability to lead by example, to have that spiritual vitality, to show that we can solve problems. We never did it perfectly throughout the Cold War, um, but we're probably at a low point right now. 
Yes, sadly. Um, Well, you know, this is um, actually exactly when we are supposed to throw it back to Jane. I think she has some questions. So, uh, Jane, please, you're invited to ask them. Well, thank you, Jill. And I'd like to suggest, I don't want to mess up uh, Nora's cue, but Sir John Scarlett, if he is on this call, knows tons about Russia. And it would be very interesting to hear an observation he might have uh, following mine. So I won't be that, I won't take a long time. What I wanted to ask is about Russia, not Russia, China, and whatever else. Uh, Putin has done a very good job of sowing misinformation and disinformation uh, in America. I mean, I, I, I think maybe the president is the only person who still thinks Russia did not meddle in our 2016 election. I don't know who the other person is. Uh, But Russia meddled in our 2016 election. That is the unanimous conclusion of our intelligence community and a lot of other folks. Okay, and Russia has continued to meddle. And Russia is likely, uh, probably, definitely meddling in the 2020 election. But a lot of people also think Russia is meddling in the protests on our streets. And for example, uh, some of the uh, conflict we've had uh, and, and the violence we've had is because Russian bots have generated it uh, through sowing misinformation and disinformation on the web and getting people all riled up. Uh, so my question's about that. I mean, is is Putin exploiting uh, this, not just observing and, and the Russian public observing uh, this uh, horror uh, and chaos on our streets, but are they also... Uh, generating some of it. You know, I'll I'll jump in very briefly, but uh, because I think Matt would have uh, deeper views on this, but I would say that um, if you look at the way, let's say back in the old Soviet days, there's no question that the Soviet government at that point was interfering and, and sometimes funding and uh, helping these protests. But, this time, um, yes, you know, I don't know percentage-wise what it is, but I don't think they have to do much of anything right now other than sit back and watch this and play the pictures that are actually on American television. I mean, we have the video of the uh, the forces, the National Guard and others, Park Police, who were around Lafayette Square, Lafayette Park, um, attacking a journalist from Australia. And also they did attack Russian journalists. That is the truth. And so you don't have to lie too much about that. You can simply put it on TV, can put it on the web, and it will join this enormous wave of information, which is a lot of it sadly is true. And that can make hay for Russia. I think it's another conversation how Russia can use this, because I do believe that its people sometimes get different messages from video that's out there than the government wants them to get. But that is a much longer conversation. Matt, do you want to jump in? Uh, I mean, this is a super hard issue on so many levels. Um, there's There's a lot of background to... Uh, Moscow and Washington sitting in judgment of one another. In some ways, the whole Cold War story was about that. In some ways, that goes back to even 
the late 19th century, you know, American uh, sort of condemning pogroms in the Russian Empire, uh, and by the way, supporting, uh, you know, rebels, uh, insurgencies against that empire, uh, and then, of course, later trying to uh, intervene in favor of, of that empire against uh, the Bolshevik rebels. And there's a long history of, frankly, mucking around in one another's internal political life, especially at moments of vulnerability. So do I like it? No, I don't like it. Um, is it my top concern right now? Very far from it. And the reason is, as I said earlier, there is a lot of misinformation. Uh, I, I tend to feel, I don't mean to completely condemn social media, I participate in it. I tend to feel that it's probably more misinformation or at least very uh, cynically curated information than it is what I would consider to be solid gold, useful, truthful, factual information. And so uh, I am concerned about that as a broader proposition for our democracy and our experiment in uh, you know, Republican government with a small r. So uh, I, I don't necessarily see that as a U.S.-Russia problem as much. Um, what I do see as a U.S.-Russia problem is that we're currently engaged in the kind of conflict dynamic where the Russians basically, basically have no stake in our stability. And really think about that statement. There are very few international relationships today. Uh, maybe U.S.-Iran is one of them. Uh, you know, North Korea is already not because of the nuclear risk. There are very few international relationships where you could say that one side or both sides don't have a stake in the stability of the other. And I'm afraid that we've crossed a line to where, for the Russians, almost anything bad that happens that shakes the uh, – the, the, the efficacy or the spiritual vitality, to go back to Kennan's term, of this American republic is good for them. Um, that may be wrong. That may be a misapprehension. But I think that's basically the way they see it at this point. There's so much water under the bridge, so much bad blood, and so much kind of institutionalized confrontation baked into this relationship. I worry, by the way, that we're really close to getting there with China. Uh, you know, I'm not Robert Daly or Abe Denmark, but... I'll, I'll say it now on record or off wherever we are. I think we're very close to being there. With, we're there with Russia. I think we're very close to being there with China. And if that's the case, then you're in a realm of, hey, they're going to use any weapon against you that they can and the consequences be damned. And I think misinformation is one weapon, but so is traditional, you know, black operational kind of espionage. They could have agents in the streets doing nasty things to us, and they do. Uh, to yeah. our friends and allies yeah. like the U.K. So, so that's, that's where I see the problem. Well, Matt, your uh, comment about uh, lack of civility and, and ongoing uh, misinformation, and et cetera, just prompts my, my pitch for why the Wilson Center matters. Uh, we, we try to avoid misinformation, and we certainly promote civility and uh, information free from spin. I don't want to dominate this, but one other thing, just briefly, that wasn't mentioned or I didn't hear it mentioned was the G7, uh, which now may become the G something else because uh, President Trump wants Russia invited and maybe some of folks disinvited and maybe Germany won't come and maybe it'll be in person and maybe it won't. Uh, but it, what, it, what is that about? Yeah, this, this is really important, and I, and I will keep this short. So. President Trump 
initially did want to host the G7. The United States is, is currently in the chairmanship of the G7. That means we host the summit. Um, recall that Russia was in what was the G8 until uh, President Obama essentially agreed with the other heads of state to boot them out after the Ukraine invasion five years ago. So uh, Trump has said a couple of years running, he wants to get the Russians back in. Uh, he said he wanted to do a G7 plus Russia as an observer summit in June. And Angela Merkel, uh, I think, probably trying to kind of smooth over everything, basically said, no, we're not doing the summit in June for reasons of COVID and everything else. Um, but I think that the implicit message there was, yeah, and we're not doing the summit with Vladimir Putin. And so the idea of just deferring this until later in the summer, or early fall, um, it may just be deferring the inevitable uh, kind of zero-sum confrontation where President Trump wants one kind of summit and the other members of the G7 want another and he can't have what he wants. 